the morning. This morning, though, we're going to start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dig into an introduction to the book of Romans. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to be here with these precious saints. Not saints because of something they've done, but saints because that's what you called them as a result of their identification with the righteousness of your son, which can be accessed only through faith in your finished work, your death, burial, and resurrection on Calvary alone, apart from any human works or human rituals. Pray that that message would be clearly understood by each and every person who's here. And if they haven't understood before that they need to give up on everything else and put all their eggs in the basket of trusting what you've done for them, your provision for their sinfulness, that today might be the day that they do that, that they're persuaded or convinced to trust in what you've already done, that today could be their day of salvation from the penalty of sin, that they could be adopted today into your family, sealed with your spirit, indwelt by your spirit, baptized by your spirit into the family of God. They could know now that they're a forever child of yours and that one day they'll go to be in your forever home. Pray that that could be something that if we've already made that decision, that that would give us hope, that that would be the thing that we would focus on and fixate on instead of the world around us and the brokenness around us. Pray that we would seek to focus on your light, keep our eyes on you so that we could be a reflection of your love and life and light into the world around us as you direct us during our days. Pray that you give me wisdom as I speak so what is said could be accurate and clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's no particular title to this morning's message, and for those of you who are looking for something a little bit more scintillating this morning, this isn't going to be that so much because we're going to start a study on a verse-by-verse expository study on the book of Romans. And I've been kind of announced that in advance that that's where we're going to be going next. It's It's a book that has a lot in it. And so bef- normally before we start a new book, you know, a- as a church, we try to teach the Word of God. You know, if you, came, if you came to the church, maybe you saw as you're pulling into the parking lot, that on the sign it says Heritage Trail Bible Church. And you say, well, what's that all about? How is that any different than any other kind of church? Well, it's not. It's just, it's a name that we, that we use because it was supposed to relate to or refer to the emphasis that we would put as a, a body of believers on God's Word. Uh, that this would be the lens or the framework through which we would try to understand Christian faith. And so it's been, our, it's been our objective over the years to, when we do gather, to not just talk about Christian platitudes or just general Christian values and principles, but to, to touch on and teach through and learn things about God's Word and what it actually says. And so that's what our, our desire has been. And so how do we go about that? Well, a bunch of different ways, but one of them is to we try to teach through different books verse by verse by verse. And so if you start and you're going to read a book, uh, do you read a book by just sort of randomly flipping to different parts and picking a verse here, picking a book, a verse there? And do you think that by doing that you would somehow gain an accurate understanding of what the whole book was about? How many people think that that would work if we just randomly s- turn to different pages in our Bible and then we took those collective little nuggets, do you think we'd come away with the author's intent by doing that? The answer is no, we wouldn't. But yet for some reason, Christians tend to teach or treat the Bible, God's word, that way. Where rarely do they think about it as one comprehensive story that was written by one author, that was communicated to us as an audience with God's intention that we would learn it. And so many people have gone to churches for many, many years And they really don't know that much about the storyline of the Bible. 
What was God trying to, what was the story and what was he trying to communicate through that story? If you then ask about specific books, so if, if the story is divided into chapters and all books are, what was that chapter about? What was sort of the focus of that? And what did that chapter add to the big picture? And so as you think about like a book, in this case, the book of Romans is really a letter that Paul wrote to a specific local church in the, the church age, the, the New Testament times, and those are the times that we live in. And so a lot of our focus and emphasis has been to teach through those letters that were written to churches like ours, even though they were written a couple of thousand years ago, because it was the same time in human history in the sense of it was the same dispensation. And we can't get into all of that this morning, but God has had different dealings with different people throughout the story of the Bible. And if you want to know more about that, track me down afterwards and I'll maybe give you an overview of that. But as you think about Christ has come, Christ died on the cross, Christ said, I'm going to institute this thing that was hidden in the Old Testament, this mystery that's going to now be revealed, which is this amalgamation of Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, male and women, all together as this one body that's going to be referred to as the body of Christ or the, the church. And so there's a number of different parts of the Bible that are written during that era or during that time that are written to those people living in, that, in those circumstances or under that house, those house rules or that plan of administration by God. And that's where this book of Romans falls or this letter that's written to this Roman church. So by and large, we try to teach through passages in the Bible and we try to teach through them so that we'd have some context about what they actually mean. Now, within those passages, the Bible teaches a lot of principles. We could call them doctrines. And I want to touch on that here this morning as, as it relates to the book of Romans. The other thing that we do, though, before I come back to that, is we do teach sometimes topical on, on topics that would come up that would come from the Word of God and do maybe a series on those. And some of you know that I spent maybe about a year talking and going through and teaching through all of the prayers that Paul has that are recorded in the New Testament. And there's lots of them, and we went through them. Some of you, if you were to come out on a Wednesday night, we do Wednesday night church services here too as well. If you come out on a Wednesday night, you'd find that I had spent the last 41 weeks or so going through 41 of the Psalms. The Psalms are broken into five different parts. The first part is Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. And so we covered that book of the Psalms, one of five books that make up the Psalms. And so 41 different Wednesdays, we went through an entire Psalm. And so some of you are like, well, he doesn't go through that much on a Sunday morning. Well, sometimes that's true, but I went through the whole book of Deuteronomy uh, as a study. We went through a series, and we did one chapter every single, every single week. Sometimes we did four or five chapters when it was stuff that we wanted to just summarize. And so we're going to be starting a new series on Wednesday nights on Chronicles. And so if you want to learn more about that, that's going to be happening starting next Wednesday. And so in any event, sometimes, though, we'll break apart from a, a general verse-by-verse -verse study through a book, and we'll do a series on something. But even then, you're still teaching through verses of the Bible in context where you'll take a paragraph or a section of four or five verses, sometimes it's less, but something around there, and you'll teach through that section. And that's what Paul's prayers were because every prayer was recorded as a standalone sort of paragraph within some of the letters that he was recording those prayers in. So a lot of rambling, I guess, but that's generally what we try to do, and we're going to get back into a book, a letter, a verse-by-verse -verse study here, and it's going to be Romans. Now, as you think about Romans, I recently had this conversation with a believer, 
And it was, a, it was a believer that I didn't know real well, but I knew of her for many, many years. But she had a negative past. She had had several negative past church experiences. And she stated in that conversation, which was a very pleasant conversation, uh, because ultimately she's my sister in Christ, and it was a pleasant conversation, but she was very, she had been down on church to some extent, in particular, a church that I, I knew of or was aware of, had frankly formally attended, um, and she just was down on her experience there. And is that normal? Are there, are there times where maybe you come out to this church, maybe you're thinking that right here this morning, and you say, I'm generally, I'm generally a little bit disgruntled with something that I think should be different or fill in the blank. I don't know, maybe, maybe it was the sidewalk wasn't shoveled well enough or whatever it was, you know. And that's not abnormal. That's just human. That we have kind of a, a notion of what things should be, even though God says, I'm going to build the church. It's my spirit that's going to work. I'm going to call men to serve in this ministry. I'm going to equip these men to do this. Um, they're going to they're speak my word or teach my word. I'm going to bring together a body of believers. This is going to be all about me. It's going to be all about my spirit working. And sometimes we're like, well, it's not working the way I want it to be working, though. You know, but maybe that's true. There have been times where things have been done uh, in a less than ideal way. That may be, be a nice way to say it. Where maybe there's things that I say that are, are not very thoughtful. Maybe there's things that I've said that have rubbed you the wrong way. And instead of forgiving me or coming and talking to me about it, maybe it's something that's still bothering you. Maybe it was someone else, though, that did it. Let's hope that that's the case. Okay, don't raise your hands if it was me. If it was somebody else, though, you can raise your hands. Maybe they rubbed you the wrong way or did something insensitive or unkind. Maybe they, maybe they truly did wrong you. And, and in, this, in this lady's case, maybe that had been true. I don't know. You know, there's two sides to every story. But that was her perspective. And in that conversation, you know what she said? She, say, she stated that she hated doctrine. I hate doctrine. And her, her perspective was that doctrine was responsible for many of the divides and hurts she had experienced in the church. And of course, she, she viewed that as unfortunate. That doctrine was really the problem, and it caused division. Maybe you've heard that say, said before, doctrine divides. And the truth is, doctrine is just a fancy way of saying teaching that comes from an authoritative source. And the doctrine of the Word of God is teaching that comes from the Word of God. Now, does that divide? Well, it can. It can. And, and it can in wrong ways, and it can in right ways, where there's a proper reason for the disagreement is such that separation would be the only thing that would make sense, because you'd say, there's no way we can work. Well, let me give you an example. There's probably many of them, but here's one. I was at a, a youth event Friday night and, and Saturday, which is a, a miracle that you even have anything to hear here this morning. <laughs> but as, as I was there, I was spending time around a number of different believers uh, from a number of different backgrounds. Not all of them come to church here. I think there was young people who had come that came from maybe as many as three or four different churches. Now, the gospel was proclaimed several times at that event. And every time it was proclaimed was nearly exactly how I would have stated it. So, praise the Lord. But let's just say, for example, that wasn't true. Let, let's say, for example, that somebody wanted to have union and fellowship with me, partner with me, 
for the sake of the gospel, but they said that the gospel was that you do your best for God and then God does the rest. They said that was the message of the gospel. The good news of the Bible was that every man needs to do his very best and then hope that God will do the rest. Now, is that the gospel as we understand it? No, could we, could we, could we partner with somebody or have that union with, with that person in terms of ministering with them if that was the message that they were gonna proclaim? The answer is no. But, but could, we, could we still love that person, still desire that that person could gain some clarity about what they thought about the gospel? Yeah. Uh, would we have to push them away? No. But we would have to be careful that we wouldn't find ourselves adopting or accepting their perverted view of what the gospel is. And that's a perversion. A perversion is just anything that's been tainted. The Bible teaches only one gospel, and Paul was very clear that if anyone preached any gospel other than what he had preached, that God's curse would be on them. Well, why? Because God is desperately interested that people would get saved. How can they get saved? By hearing the good news about the salvation that Jesus Christ offers through his sacrifice on our behalf. So if the gospel message that was being preached isn't what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, how that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, or how that Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If it wasn't what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, how that by grace you've been saved through faith, it is not of yourself, it is a gift from God, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And if now that person is saying, salvation comes from human effort, you'd say that's not the gospel. That's something that God can't honor. Not because God doesn't love that person, God desperately loves that person, but God can't honor that message because it's not his message. If you were to take the message of the Bible from the fall of man, original sin, and track that all the way through to the very end, the message that you would find in God's word is, man cannot do this apart from me. That's the message that you would come across. That man is hopeless and helpless and ultimately hellbound unless God is going to intercede on his behalf and provide a way of rescue from this hopelessness that man finds himself in. And you say, well, that's not the story throughout the Bible. I say, give, give me an example. Isn't that the story of Moses? You can't do this without me. You need me to work through you to make this possible. Isn't that the story of Noah? Isn't that the story of David, Saul, Solomon? Isn't that the story of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and Joseph? Isn't that the story of the nation of Israel collectively? You're hopeless and helpless apart from my intervention on your behalf. Apart from my grace. You see, this story is all about God's grace. You don't deserve any of this. Go to the story. Did, did David deserve that? No, he was an adulterer, a murderer. He had all kinds of problems in his life. He, he chose sin instead of choosing to trust God and follow God. But did God love him? God loved him desperately. Did God give up on him? No. Did God make a way for him to be reconciled to himself through faith in God's future provision of a sacrifice in his place? Yes. And was David was David justified before God? Yes, on the basis of human works? No, on the basis of faith in God's provision to deal with his sinfulness. 
So you track that through the Bible. But as you're thinking about somebody who would say doctrine divides, well, in a sense it can and should, but in another sense, it doesn't at all. Doctrine should actually bring us together where we could say, instead of talking about what your opinion is, let's gather together and talk about what says the Scripture, whereas it used to be the older way of, what saith the Scripture? We talked on this on, on Friday night with a group of men. What does the Bible say? And so then if we're reasoning together based on the teachings, if doctrine is teaching from an authoritative source, from the teachings of the Word of God, then you would state a viewpoint or a principle or, or a understanding of God's Word, and I would say, which passages are informing your view of that? And then we could reason together about, are you being true to the text? Are you taking that principle out of the context of the Bible in, in terms of specific context of that particular letter? How about the New Testament as a whole? How about the Bible as a whole? Are you seeing it through its proper context? Are you understanding the words as they should be understood? That type of thing. And so it kind of, it was hard for me to hear that because it's so sad. Because, in fact, doctrine itself is not the cause of any human problems or divisions in churches directly, other than when you're talking about a disagreement about something so fundamental to the Bible's message that you couldn't agree to disagree about that particular thing. See, doctrine in and of itself is nothing, again, more than just teaching. And it's coming from a source that we all would say is true. I mean, if you're a Christian, one of the fundamental principles of that understanding is that the Bible is true. So while doctrinal disagreement can legitimately lead to separation at times, most divisions ultimately have very little to do with biblical teaching when properly applied. In truth, Bible doctrine or biblical doctrine, it's essential and vital to Christian growth and living. It's impossible to live the Christian life and to grow in your faith apart from a proper understanding of God's truth. Now you think about the day that we live in. This is especially needed in the face of contemporary pluralism, and pluralism is taking a whole bunch of different ideas and trying to meld them together. Syncretism would be a similar idea that instead of having a whole bunch of ideas that are equally valid, syncretism would take some ideas from one thing and try to plug them into something else. Relativism is something that our young people are facing where they're taught that there is no such thing as truth, a fixed standard by which we could gauge the direction for our lives. There is no such thing. It's, it's all relative to your own subjective opinions. And see, your your perspective about things doesn't make it real. And that's something that's slowly been eroded. It's been attacked that there's no universal truth, no universal standard. That didn't used to be the case as much. Your perception is not reality. There is reality and then there's the way you're viewing reality. And sometimes your perception of reality is in alignment with reality. Other times you're just confused. You're deceived. You are, you are sincere in that deception. You're, you're perfect, you're in your perception of things, you're sincere about it, but you're sincerely wrong. Because you are seeking to be the standard and God says, no, I am the standard of truth. And I've not stuttered when I spoke and I laid out the truth in my word. And so sadly, that's become 
something that is very, very common nowadays where at least in times past there would be a greater agreement, I would say kind of nationally or perhaps even universally about what compromises or what, cons- what is truth actually consist of. And then there might be people who were either agreeing with that or not agreeing with it in the sense of the way they were living their lives. They may, they may be living in light of that truth or maybe they weren't, but they would at least acknowledge that this is true, that these kinds of things are wrong, that these kinds of things represent a deviation from God's standards of what is right. Some of those people may not, in fact, many of those people may not even have known the Lord in the sense of known him in the sense of putting all of their dependence on Christ's finished work on their behalf on Calvary. But they still accepted the truths that were taught from God's word as universally fixed facts and true. And now that's, under, that's been under attack for many years. For all of eternity, it's been under attack to a certain extent. But it, it had been different. And it's been worse lately, in, at least in this country. So sadly, many Christians possess an extremely limited understanding of their own faith. Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard anybody even really talk about studying the Bible in this way that I've been talking about it. Maybe the only church you've ever known is come to church and there's some sort of a story about what happened in the pastor's life and he turns to two verses in the Bible and tries to connect the story of his life to something in the Bible. But doesn't ever actually teach through the Bible. You could go there for the rest of your life and never be able to walk through the story of the Bible and never be able to understand, understand or explain the primary doctrines of the Bible, the teachings of the Bible, because you'd either have never heard them or never understood them. And that's sad. But that is, that is true, and it's true even here. That if we're not careful, we're not going to understand God as he wants to be known, because how does he reveal himself? He reveals himself through his word. If you're sitting here this morning and your heart's desire is honestly, Lord, if your prayer this morning was, Lord, I want to know you as you want to be known. Was that your prayer this morning? I hope it was. I hope your prayer was, God, I desperately want to know you the way you want to be known. If that was your prayer, your life isn't going to be able to to work without this in it. You understand that? Because how does God reveal himself? Through his word, the illumination of the spirit of God to help us to make sense of God's word. And maybe you say, hey, I tried to read the Bible. I talked to a young person at T-Mobile the other day. He saw I had a hat on that said, Jesus saved me. He started a conversation about faith. He said, what do you do? I think he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, oh, I'm just starting my faith journey. I said, great. I said, do you have any questions about that? He said, yeah, I've been trying to read the Bible. I can't make any sense of it. (laughs) Hey, you don't have to feel bad. Raise your hand. Have you ever felt that before? Okay, all right. So, So then can't you see the value of coming and spending time with other believers who maybe are a little bit further along in their journey, maybe have made a little bit more sense of it? hearing the teaching of God's word so that it could be explained that we can make the Bible a little bit smaller than it seems. It's a little bit daunting at first, but all of a sudden, maybe even today I've helped you. 
maybe to see that this isn't a collection of stories. This is one comprehensive story that God has for mankind, a revelation of himself to us. That every story is really telling the same story, which is that man is hopeless apart from God's intervention on his behalf. Maybe that's going to help you. I'm guessing it won't help you when you turn to a Leviticus, though. Okay? Well, come back and talk to me about that. What does that add to the story? In any event, <laughs> we're not even going to get an introduction to Romans here this morning. Uh, sorry, friends. Those of you who are really bothered by like, how much we actually get through, uh, pray for me. Pray for me. Now, while some people view doctrine as stale and boring, a sound understanding of Bible doctrine is critical to the believer seeking to live life or to see life from a biblical worldview. Now, remember we talked about worldview even as I was introducing some of these songs, the lens through which we're going to see the world. And if the believer sees that the only truth that they can count on is found in God's word, then wouldn't you want to see the world through the lens of God's word? Please don't actually go through life like this, friends. But wouldn't you want to see the world through the lens of God's word? And so if, t- if doctrine is nothing more than teaching from God's word, then you'd want to see the world that way, to live life that way. It's needed now more than ever as biblical truths are overtly being attacked and criticized. Remember, we used to live in a predominantly Christian nation. And by that I mean, was, was the nation predominantly all believers in Jesus Christ? The answer is no. But were they at least open to, favorable to, the truths about God's word or Christianity as a whole or the value of the Bible or the accuracy of the Bible or the principles taught in the Bible? And the answer is yes, they were. And so in that sense, they weren't criticizing God's, the biblical truths per se, other than maybe the truth about how man cannot help God out when it comes to salvation. Because unfortunately, many of those people believed that salvation was a byproduct of a combination of God's work and their human effort. And that's not the message of the Bible. But other things about the Bible as it relates to family structures, home structures, national structures, the way we should live our lives, the way we should work, the way we should raise our kids, the way that we should interact with one another, the things that we should prioritize, lists of what is right, lists of what is wrong, people would have openly agreed to that. Well, that's not the world that we live in now. Now, while it might have been ignored then, it wouldn't have been viewed in a negative light like it is now. Now it's openly attacked, criticized, and mocked. And Romans has been described as the jewel of New Testament doctrine. The jewel of New Testament doctrine. It represents Paul's longest book and most in-depth book as it relates to fundamental teachings that came originally as revealed from God but taught by Jesus Christ and now communicated to various churches and this church being the church at Rome. So that's why I picked this as our next verse-by-verse expository study and now... Let's talk a little bit about the book of Romans. Now, next week I'm hoping to cover the first 17 verses of the first chapter. So if you're looking for some homework, some things that you want to look at, that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping to go through Romans in bigger chunks than I have been going through some books in the past. Pray about that. I have to be able to understand it well enough to teach it and be confident that what we're saying, what I'm teaching is true. And so the more that you bite off, the more that you have to be able to explain accurately and clearly. And some of you are like, wow, this, how did he ever end up being a pastor? He doesn't know everything. Well, it's because God calls you 
to certain things. God is the one who then is equipping that. God is the one who is empowering it. God has a way of trying to keep us humble. I hope he's keeping you humble about these things too, but there's so much that I have to learn. So be praying for me too because I'm on a faith journey as well, just like you are. Now, who wrote the letter of Romans? I've already touched on it extensively. Paul authored or composed the letter. You see that in the first verse of Romans chapter 1. Now, it actually was written down by Tertius. You can see that in Romans 16, verse 22. So Paul didn't write it, but he did compose it. He authored it, but Paul had other people scribe, inscribe what he was writing or what he was communicating, and they actually wrote it. Paul usually signed his letters, or he for sure started signing his letters, so there'd be no one who could say, this is a fake, this isn't a letter. This is a letter from Paul when it actually wasn't. Now, in terms of who is Paul, for most of us, I know this is, this is probably, this may be review. Hey, but don't feel bad if this is the first time you've ever heard of who Paul is. Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles. So a lot of the church age truth that was written was written by the Apostle Paul. And if you've never heard about him, I'm glad to introduce him to you today. Okay? This is just, this is a summary of his life. This isn't, this isn't something that could be comprehensive because there's way too much to go through. But he was an Israelite. He was a Jewish man. He was born in Tarsus. You can see some references for that. The name that he grew up, his birth name was Saul. God actually changed his name to Paul. When he got saved, he, stuttered, he studied under Gamaliel, and that's how I recommend you deal with any word that you don't understand. Just say it real fast, Gamaliel. <laughs> In Jerusalem, now he was a famous uh, teacher, a rabbi, and he, it was highly sought after to be under his tutelage if you were going to try to be a Pharisee, which Paul became. So Paul became a Pharisee. Just like his father before him, some people don't know that. That might be a little fact that you would say he came up, he was raised in a very religious home. The Pharisees were the absolute most religious people within the Jewish culture. And they were very strict about keeping the Bible or the law as they understood it. But they had also added to it in many, many different ways with human traditions. And we don't have enough time to go into that. But they had all of these different regulations and rules about every aspect of their lives. But most of them were devout and sincere. And we'll see that, we know that Paul was. So he came by it honestly. It had been his father's occupation as well. Now, some negative things. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. And we see that passage there for it. Now, Stephen was the first Christian martyr that was recorded. Don't know if he was actually the first one, but we thought of that way because he's the first one that was recorded to have been martyred for his faith. He became a persecutor of the church he was very influential in the Jewish resistance to the gospel message. So he came unto his own, the verse says, and what does it end with? His own received him not. So as a gatekeeper for the Jewish faith, Paul is a Pharisee, a Pharisee of a Pharisee. Paul tried to stamp out Christianity because they had rejected Christ as a Savior. Why? Because they were looking for a Messiah who would rescue them from Roman rule, not a Messiah who would free them from their sins. So in that sense, they weren't looking for a suffering Savior. They were looking for a conquering king, and it caused 
much rejection amongst the Jewish people, but not in total, as Paul himself was converted at point in time here. So he was present for that. He was dragging women and children out of their homes. We can read about that. While he was actively persecuting Christians, he was converted on the road to Damascus. Converted just means he was, he was confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, and he converted his thinking, changed his thinking. That's actually what the word repent means too in the Bible. Some people have completely butchered the understanding of that word. Uh, that word means to change your mind. It doesn't mean to turn away from things. It's, it's focused on what you're turning to in your thinking, not what you're turning away from. And so often people are, they put the focus of salvation on how you're going to conform your life or transform your own life by getting rid of all the bad and focusing now only on the good and that that's what salvation is about, a self-help program to improve your life, improve your behavior. But the truth is the gospel is about changing your thinking and saying, I could never rescue myself and I'm dead in trespasses and sins and only Jesus could rescue me through his sacrifice to pay the debt of my sins which I could never pay. And if the debt is fully paid by Jesus and I accept that payment on my behalf by receiving the sacrifice of Christ by faith alone, what debt remains for me to pay? And the answer is none. Because all of my sins, all of my iniquities was nailed to the cross, past, present, and future. There's no more sin to atone for or pay for. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And so that debt's been paid. I've been washed white. I've been now judicially looked at by God. He looks at me as now right with him, in a right standing with him, or we use the word righteous, but that's what it means to be justified, to be declared to be in a right standing with God. And that's one of those doctrinal words that Paul's going to tackle at length here in the book of Romans. And you say, I never even heard that word before. Well, the Bible talks about that word. It's a critical word to our understanding of the Christian faith. But as you think about Paul, there was a time where he became justified by faith alone in Christ's finished work on his behalf when he was confronted and converted on the road to Damascus. Now, he then went into Damascus, met some, he met some other believers, he went to Arabia for some time, he learned things about his faith, we don't know the full extent of that, then he returned to Jerusalem. He met up with Barnabas and ministered with him in Antioch. Then he be began going on various missionary journeys with various companions or fellow missionaries to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, gave him a unique mission. Don't just focus on sharing the gospel with Jewish people who have previously rejected this message, but take this message to Gentile nations. And, and, and Jesus had stated that that was his desire, that you'll be witnesses of me, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria. We're talking about a ripple effect here. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. That the gospel message would spread by people who would be willing to share the light that they had been exposed to themselves. And as they saw the light, they would want to tell other people about that as well. And there's many different ways that that could be accomplished, but that is something that is clearly God's desire. So then how does his story end? He was imprisoned in Rome. He had previously been in prison for two years. Well, he was imprisoned two times. Once he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. He then went, went to Rome, was imprisoned under house arrest for two more years, so four years total. At that time, he wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philippians. Uh, he wrote Colossians. And perhaps other things at that time too I'm, that I'm not remembering. He was let go for a little while is the, is the belief, the prevailing view, though there's, it's hard to track some of that. And then he was tried, imprisoned again, and sentenced to death and ultimately martyred by Nero. 
So that's who Paul is. Now, is there a lot more to that story? The answer is yes. Do you want to read about it? Then I'd, I'd say go home and read the book of Acts tonight. And the history of the, of the early church is recorded in Acts. The first section deals with Peter's life. Second section deals with Paul's life. Could you learn that? Could you know that? Could you say that? Answer is yes. As we study God's word, we learn many things. God reveals more things to us. How, how do I know that? In part from people telling me that, but in part from reading it for myself. Now, how does Paul describe or introduce himself? Now, we're going to see this next week when we look at these first verses, but in verses 1 through 5, he describes himself as a bondservant or a slave is the proper, is probably a better translation there, a slave of Jesus Christ. He also describes his authority, which is to be an apostle. His message is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. His objective is the salvation of all people through faith or acceptance of the gospel we see in verse 5. Now, who was it written to? It's in the title, right? To believers in Rome. And one of the things that you'll notice about this letter is that Paul is writing to a church, and, and actually probably churches, there are probably several churches in Rome that he was writing to here, that he had never visited. And we'll see that he talks at length about his desire to finally visit these believers. Now, both Jewish, Jewish and Gentile believers are addressed in this letter. Primarily, the audience is Gentile, though, and we'll talk about how many of the Jewish believers had actually been driven out of Rome before Romans was written, and they were just starting to trickle back in. And so the primary audience is thought to be Gentile, and, and there's a verse that we'll see here in those first 17 verses that touches on that. It also seems, like I mentioned, that there were multiple churches in the Roman Empire's capital, which is Rome here, because Paul mentions an additional church in the home of Priscilla and Aquila besides these specific letter rep recipients that he's writing to. So at least two different groups that he's mentioning, there's in all likelihood more. Romans 16.5 is where you can see that reference. Now, the tradition was for these letters to be shared and the contents passed around until they eventually became canonized into the completed text of the Bible. And so this letter would have been passed around to other believers. It would have been copied and shared and disseminated because it was a way for God to reveal doctrinal matters and truths in his ongoing revelation of his truth before the canon of Scripture closed. Now, where was it written from? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's thought to be written from Corinth. Now, that's based primarily on references to three individuals that were connected to Corinth in the letter to the Romans here. And they're all found in chapter 16, Phoebe, Gaius, and Erastus. And all of them had strong connections to Corinth. And if you want to know more about sort of the thought press process about why those references lend themselves to a belief that <coughs> Paul had written this from Corinth, you can come and talk to me about it after. I'm not going to go into it in greater detail. But there's several, several things uh, that lead to that assumption. Is it critical? No. What difference does it make ultimately? Now, what is a little bit more critical, I think, is when was it written? When was it written? Now, based on where it is thought to have been written from, the date is estimated to be between 56 and 57 A.D. 56 or 57 A.D. So not one of his earliest letters, and not the last letters either, because he wrote the pastoral epistles, and like I said, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, during his Roman imprisonment, which hadn't yet happened, 
when he wrote the letter to the Romans, but he had already, he had already written 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians before this letter is written. Now, why do you say that's important? Well, it's because Paul was on his third missionary journey at the time. Uh, he was gathering an offering from Gentile Christians for the church in Jerusalem. That's sort of the context. But the reason it's significant is that Paul is writing Romans on the tail end of the practical missionary outreach phase of his life. And you're saying, well, why is that important? Well, because Paul has already experienced and learned many things by the time he's writing this letter. And so you'd say, if this is a magnus opus, I think I'm saying that right, wrong, of doctrine or Paul's understanding of doctrine, then how is he in a position to write it now? He's in a position to write it now because he's experienced a lot. See, without knowing it, Paul had reached the end of his recorded mission field work because his first imprisonment begins in 58 or 59, shortly after this letter is written. Then four years of being imprisoned, then a short time of maybe being out, of which you don't, we don't have a lot of detail, and then a final imprisonment trial and execution. So he'd had these great mission trips, but unbeknownst to him, they were largely over now by the time he was writing this letter. He had been preaching the gospel for almost 25 years. So cut me a little slack. But 25 years when he writes this. He had planted churches over much of the northeastern Mediterranean, part of the Roman Empire. He had hammered out his theology and tested it in the fire of various pastoral problems, various church problems, various doctrinal disagreements. He had hammered out his theology through debates with various sources of opposition and defended his faith in many different instances at many different times. He had experienced many personal trials and hardships of many kinds in his life before he writes this. So he's writing Romans only after having had significant opportunity for reflection and personal and spiritual growth. That's why when it was written is important. Can't you see how that would be true in your life? That the things that you might have to offer by way of wisdom to another believer might be enhanced by having lived more life, experienced more things, learned more things, defended your faith in different ways, and you'd be better prepared to do that as you had grown and matured in your faith? You, you see why age is not a thing when it comes to the way that Christ sees the body of believers? We often make clicks. We don't even know we're doing it, but after church, just ask yourself, do I always go talk to the same people? Do I find myself aligning those conversations with people on the basis of extra-biblical things that we have in common? I'm going to tell you that's true. You might not know it, but that's true. Think about it. Why these people? Why do I go talk to these people but not those people? Why didn't I go introduce myself to the new couple that's sitting here today? Why do they have to come and say to me at times, it feels hard to get plugged in? It feels hard to feel accepted. I don't really feel like I belong. Why is that said at churches all around the country? Because we'll always choose comfortable, what we're used to. We'll always go with habits instead of taking the time to expand that view and say every single person in here, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, is my dearly beloved brother and sister. Maybe I ought to go get to know them. 
And you say, well, it's not all on me. They run out the door every time the service ends. Maybe that's true. Guess what? If you want to get to know people, you'll have to be friendly. Friendly. I used to tease one of my friends, and he'd say he moved to Duluth from Michigan, and he said, I'm having trouble making friends. (laughs) And just came to me, and I said, if you're friendly, you'll have friends. But it's somewhat true. Now, is that comfortable? Who thinks that that's comfortable? Not many of you. Got one, we got one guy who it comes naturally to. I'm looking at you, Mike. I'm looking at you, Mike. It's not that comfortable to go introduce yourself to strangers, is it? Or vice versa. But that's what's necessary if people want to actually grow as a family and get to know each other. So the point being, age is not a thing. If you actually want to learn something about people who have gone through it, they have more experience with it, why is it that sometimes the most gracious people you're going to meet are the oldest people that you meet? Well, because they've fallen on their face enough times to see that unless God is working in their life, there's no hope for them either. They've lived it. They've watched their kids go down all kinds of different roads. They've gotten over the self-righteousness, the judgmentalism. They see how difficult this thing really is. Now, it should be simple, but practically how difficult it is. So in any event, age isn't a thing. Go introduce yourself to somebody much younger than you or much older than you. That's your task, and if you don't, I want you to feel a lot of shame on your way home. (laughs) Now, what is the theme of Romans? This is something that has been highly uh, debated And I choose the gospel of God. If you look at the gospel of God, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see this. Some of you are there. I'm looking at my notes here, so. And this is why Romans is the first book that's arranged this way in, in the Bible. It's because this is the most doctrinally complete take on biblical teaching that Paul has, so they put it right front and center. It's not in chronological order in case you didn't know that. But what does it say here in verse 1? Paul, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, that's his authority, separated to, meaning assigned this task, the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now, look down at verse 17. No, sorry, 16. For I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in it referring to the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, meaning throughout all time. As it is written, the just or those who are justified, they live by faith. They can only be justified by faith. They can only live by faith. And this ultimately ends up being two of the biggest principles that Paul covers in the book of Romans. So the gospel of God. Now a theme is brought as the gospel. It's required to encompass the diversity of topics that Paul handles in this letter. So Romans grows out of Paul's mission-focused mentality and the gospel he preaches is the heart of that outreach. So naturally the theme or the overall arcing theme is, many of you maybe know this, but the word gospel means good news, a message of good news. So the message of good news of God is the general theme of Romans, and that reaches, that comes again from this focus that Paul has on sharing or spreading the good news message of God 
to a hopeless and helpless mankind. Now, key verses, we just read them. I think the key verses are Romans 1, 16 through 17, but of course you could pick so many good verses in this letter, and those are just the ones that I pick because they tie into what I think the overall message is. It's a message of trying to communicate doctrinal teaching, but the teaching is a teaching, a message of good news, and so that's what we see in verses 16 and 17 about how important it is to not be ashamed of the gospel because ultimately that is the message of the Bible. Now, what is the primary topic or purpose in writing? We're going to go through these kind of quickly because we're running out of time, but Paul was not addressing specific situational issues as he had in some other letters like the epistles to the Corinthians. In the letter to the Romans, Paul primarily explains the big picture related to the doctrine of salvation. We call that soteriology. So the doctrine of salvation. He develops the gospel message throughout Romans, and perhaps that is why this is Paul's longest letter, but it's salvation, past, present, and future. We'll touch on that in a second. We're not just talking about justification there. He wrote that they would know and understand completely the gospel of Christ as it relates to every phase of salvation, past, present, and future. We'll see that in the first eight chapters. Paul begins his letter by stating that he was called to be an apostle for the gospel's sake. Paul's dedication belonged to Christ and his gospel as he preached it with his whole heart. We see that in verse 9. The gospel is also portrayed as the power of God unto salvation that is able to save those who believe. We just read that verse. God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faith to faith as we think about this being the theme of, of things, the gospel, the good news from God. But God's righteousness is revealed in this gospel from faith to faith. In this letter, Paul shows why it is necessary to be justified by faith. The only way this righteousness may be accessed is through faith. It is by faith alone. Man can never make himself righteous, nor will a single ounce of merit do anything in regards to salvation. We've already looked at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 this morning. It's by grace that you've been saved, not by works. Paul adds to this and says that one who is righteous lives by faith, and then he'll talk about Christian living, about practical sanctification, about what that even might entail in later chapters. Now, what are some secondary topics or purposes? Secondary topics, Paul addresses God's dispensational plan as it relates to Israel's past national election. We'll see that in chapter 9. Israel's present rejection, we'll see that in chapter 10. Israel's future redemption, we'll see that in chapter 11. If you don't know what I mean when I say the phrase dispensational plan, Uh, Ask me about it after the service. Paul discusses the interplay between Jews and Gentiles as it relates to the newly established church. We'll find this discussed sort of throughout the, the book, this newly established body of Christ, God's previous covenantal promises and God's eternal plan. What is this inter interplay going to be between Jews and Gentiles. God had made previous covenantal promises to national Israel. How does that factor in? How does the the body of everybody being saved or being identified in Christ, how does that work in God's eternal plan? Another, I have primary topic, but it should be secondary here. Paul also indirectly presents truths that ultimately promote a proper Christian worldview. We touched on that in our introduction, a coherent way of seeing life or the world based on or through the lens of God's unchangeable and infallible word. That's what we mean with biblical worldview. Paul's going to present truths that ultimately promote that. Then he does so by teaching about man's natural condition, man's spiritual need, God's provision of a way of escape and rescue, and the manner of thinking or living that is intended to develop as a result of learning 
internalizing and applying doctrine. So that's how he goes about presenting these truths that promote this Christian worldview. Paul discusses the believer's practical sanctification or daily walk as it relates to God, spiritual gifts, fellow believers, the lost, human government, love, Christian liberty, and the need for doctrinal clarity, distinctions, and even separation. We'll see that in the last four chapters. Paul communicates his personal, this is the ending of Romans, Paul communicates his personal plans to visit in the future and various greetings to specific believers he is connected to. So that's a general overview of some of the primary and secondary topics that are going to be addressed. If you're like, there's no way I could write that down the way you were going through it, send me an email, send me a text message, I can send you those notes if you want to have them available to you as we're going to be going through this study. This should have said, what, are some, what is the outline? I don't know how some of this got messed up. What is the outline of the book? Uh, I take, take outlines with a grain of salt. There's so much in some of these chapters that it's hard to even necessarily summarize it uh, with just a short phrase or a word. But we have the introduction that we're going to cover first 17 verses next week, Lord willing. Then we start talking about sin and condemnation, chapter 1, 18 through 320. Then salvation and justification from the penalty of sin. We see that from 3.21 through 5.21. Then salvation and sanctification in the sense of practical sanctification, 6.1 through 8.17. Then salvation and glorification. This is the third and final phase of salvation. Salvation from the very presence of sin is what we mean by glorification. It's covered there in that section in chapter 8. Then we see salvation relating to national Israel, 9.1 through 11.36. And we're going to see salvation in its intended practical applications. We've got three chapters of that. And then we'll have the conclusion and greetings. So this is a general overview of the outline of the book of Romans. This is what we have to look forward to. If you were here hoping that we'd get into the actual text a little bit more than we did, I'm sorry if that was boring. I'm sorry. But come back next week and we'll get into it verse by verse. We're going to try to, like I say, we're going to try to take some, some bigger chunks of this so that we're not in the book of Romans for the next three years, okay? I'd like to get through it faster than that. But I also, some of the things I think about this is that if God is really big, and he is really big, then he knows exactly what it is that we need to hear. He knows exactly what it is that he needs to show me or point me uh, Two, as far as what to teach. Some of the rabbit trails that I get off on when I'm introducing a song or talking for the service, some of you are like, man, I wish this service would just be shorter. If he got rid of all of that, we could have been out of here 15 minutes ago. Listen, you're not wrong to think that. Some of that's personal preference. Some of that is what has your past experiences been. But I do want to challenge you a little bit about that. And just think this. If I spill what I'm filled with, If my spiritual health is only as good as my spiritual intake, how am I going to spill the things of righteousness if I go to church for 15 minutes once a week and for the rest of the the week, I'm constantly bombarded with human viewpoint. I'm constantly bombarded with the things that the world says should be my priorities. I'm constantly attacked by my flesh, my sin nature, trying to distract me from my eternal purpose. How could, how could 15 minutes of a short devotion in place of a message or teaching from God's word, how could that help you grow? 
How could that help you understand the things of the faith that you say you have? I believe, that, I believe you when you say that. But the reason you don't have any foundation or understanding that's deeper is because you haven't been exposed to actual teaching from the Word of God. Well, is it gonna get, is it gonna be hard to get used to that change? Well, yeah, but do you have any problems sitting through a two-hour movie? You know, and so you think about, we're gonna sing for a half an hour, we're gonna have an hour-long message. Is that a long message? Well, sure, but your kids sit in school for six to eight lessons that are 50 minutes long every single day. Why would we take a perspective that we have to have just micro doses of this? Now, I will agree with you about a lot of things. One, sometimes I wish I spoke shorter. I actually happen to believe 50 minutes would be better, but you see again today, I'm probably closer to an hour. 45, 50 minutes. I, I do agree that you probably can't even take as much as was said this morning and do anything with it in the sense that it's hard to keep track of it, but I would also say this. How much time do you spend on your phone, listening to the radio, watching television at night, surfing the internet? Could you listen to this message five times this week? You could. You could stream it right from our website. You could listen to it on your phone with your earbuds in. I listen to messages while I'm cutting firewood, splitting wood out in the woods, snowshoeing, put headphones on. Could you do that? Yeah. And if you put more of that in, would you grow closer to the Lord? Would you be more spiritually healthy than you otherwise would be? The answer is yes. So trust me, I'm sympathetic. There were times when I was a young person, I see a few of you out there. There were times when I was a young person sitting right where you are, wishing I could throw a dart <laughs> at the preacher that would have a little note attached to it that would say, time's up. Okay? <laughs> and if you're feeling that, attach your note to something soft. Okay? I'm not saying get rid of that idea altogether. I'm just saying think in terms of nerf. <laughs> and, and I get it. There's a preacher that tells me about someone in his church that as soon as he hits the, if it's the messages are typically 50 minutes, as soon as he hits the 50 minute mark, the guy stands up in the back and rattles his keys. <laughs> it's not going to bother me that much if you want to do that but I probably still am not going to finish. So, All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time we can spend in your word. Thank you for this time of spiritual nourishment that we could take in your truth, that we could, we could have it then affect our thinking as we're looking to you. We're trusting and depending on you. Pray that we'd let you then take these truths and make them practical in our applications in our lives so that we would be living in a way that was transformed as you want to transform us into the image of your son, that you want to mold us into something different than we naturally are. Pray that you would undertake to give us that mentality. Pray that you'd keep us humble. Pray that you would keep us desperately searching for your truth. Pray that you'd give us a heart that says, Lord, I want to know you as you want to be known, and I know the only way you reveal yourself is first and foremost through your word. I'm going to prioritize that in my life, not out of a sense of guilt or obligation, but out of a sincere desire to want to be closer to my Savior who loved me and gave himself for me.